And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will, wrap, you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the Lord of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to the God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those whom his favor rests. Heavenly Father, on this third week of Advent, let us remember that the good news of Jesus' birth has the power to bring us joy this Christmas season. Our joy isn't dependent on what is going on in our life, in our world, or the people that we are with. It doesn't depend on the gifts we give or the gifts we find under the tree. No earthly thing can ever bring us complete joy. Our joy comes from you. That joy that flooded the hearts of the shepherds, the angels, the wise men, and the hosts of heaven. And Mary and Joseph is the joy that still has the power to overwhelm our hearts with rejoicing. Our joy doesn't come from our jobs, our family, our relationships, our finances, or our success. Our joy doesn't come from what we have on earth or who we are, who we are with. Our joy is a gift. It is a gift that you gave us that first Christmas in Jesus Christ. Our joy is encompassed in our Savior, King Jesus. Flood our hearts with joy this Advent season as we reflect on the good news of Jesus' birth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Well, let's have the kids be dismissed to their time of worship upstairs. That's preschool through the fifth grade. And thank you again for worshiping with us this morning. We'll have one more song from our choir after our time in the Word here this morning. A few things to draw your attention to, some announcements that will be on the screen, some will be on your bulletin. Uh, tonight is our Christmas caroling evening. The way it works is we want anybody from any age to come and join us here at 5.30. And we'll have multiple groups going in multiple different directions. Uh, the youth will go as a big group and they have some, um, some destinations picked out already. The rest of us will have a couple of groups that will be divided into depending on who shows up. And so um, please, please come. We did not do sign-ups for this, but we would love to have a large group of people of all ages come. Obviously... Kids are great, um, but from kids to the oldest ages, you're welcome to come and sing with us this evening. Um, it will not be complex. It will be simple. Just come, and um, we'll, we'll go to a couple of different destinations, and we'll give praises to Jesus. Um, then next Sunday night will be our kids' Christmas show here in this room at 6 o'clock. Okay, so 5.30 tonight, 6 o'clock next Sunday and then the Christmas show next Sunday will be followed up by a um, cookie reception, which is also a fundraiser for our youth and some of their trips that are coming up. The donations will be accepted um, for that. And then you have the Christmas Eve service at 5 o'clock 
on Christmas Eve. You have Christmas morning service, 11 o'clock Sunday morning, the 25th. So we'd love for any and all of you to join us for each of those upcoming events. Um, also, on your way in, you should have received another um, Advent devotional. Um, we gave out part one a couple of weeks ago. This is part two, which will take you through this week and the next uh, five uh, readings a week, uh, bringing you up until um, Christmas Eve and then Christmas morning, which is Saturday and Sunday. So please um, engage with those. They're not meant to replace your normal Bible study, but rather to supplement and enhance. Um, Advent is a, singing, is a season of longing and anticipation. And the reason that we chose Isaiah for this Advent season in our time in the Word is because Isaiah gives us a picture of longing. And what we need to be careful of is that we don't just take Christmas for granted, take Jesus for granted, and take the things that we already know for granted. But we're trying to connect with the longing that generation after generation of Israel faced and endured in preparation as they, as they yearned for the coming of the Messiah. And I pray that Advent devotional helps supplement your Bible study and your worship um, this season. Uh, a couple of, uh, another kind of simple thing that you need to know of, um, we did have some problems with our phone service in the office, and we needed to make that known to you. They were down for a few days this week. They'll probably be down for a little while tomorrow morning. So if you need your staff this week, um, just uh, send us an email or call on a cell phone. Um, I'd like to invite you now. Oh, one more thing. Um, next Sunday as well. So next Sunday evening is going to be the kids program. Next Sunday morning, this is important. This involves all of you that will be here in the room next Sunday morning. At the conclusion of the service next Sunday, we are going to go and pack the bags for the jail Christmas party. We've done this a number of years before. We've done it different ways. COVID sort of messed up our system a little bit, so we did it different ways in 2020 and 2021. Here's how we're doing it this year. Um, everything is going to be set up in the gymnasium. So at the conclusion of the morning service next Sunday, we will go from here to the gymnasium. Everything's going to be set up for us. You'll just simply go through the line, and it's going to go like clockwork. You're going to go, you're going to pick up a bag, you're going to pack a bag, you're going to fold a bag, you're going to put it in a box, and maybe you do two bags at once as you go through the line, and then you can just get right back in the line again. You're not going to do like five or six bags at once because it's going to slow the lineup. But we want everyone to have a chance to participate. We want our oldest members to participate. We want our youngest members to participate, as uh, this is a simple thing that anyone can do that can bring some joy and also uh, bring the hope of the gospel as we put a simple gospel presentation in these bags, as we have kids' artwork that's decorating these bags, bringing hope to those that are incarcerated in our area um, this Christmas season. And we're leveraging the opportunity God's given us through our support of Richard Seal, the Whitfield County Jail um, uh, chaplain here in, in our county and for our jail. Um, we, are, we are joining with him we are linking arms with him in his ongoing ministry into that facility, knowing that the gospel is proclaimed in that facility regularly. And so we are going to, uh, we're going to bring the hope of Christmas and continue to link arms that way. So please be in prayer for that, and please stay after the service next Sunday um, to, to join us in packing and serving. I'm going to invite you now to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. And yes, I know we're skipping a few chapters. 
we're not going all the way through Isaiah this December, but we're hitting a few chapters that help us anticipate the Messiah and help us celebrate what Jesus is doing. One of the necessary skills that you must have as a parent is the skill to reframe a situation. Because when you're dealing with a young children or with young children, sometimes really small things become really, really ultimate things. It can be as simple as playing a game with a child, and you think everybody is having fun, and everybody is having fun, until that fateful moment when a winner is declared, which also means that a loser is declared in any and every game. And therefore, there's a great opportunity for wailing, for weeping, gnashing of teeth, and great epic pain for a child to experience. One of the things that we have to do as a parent is we, we reframe that with the context. You are not hurt. Your feelings are hurt. You are not in any physical pain. And yet, you're, yet you are reacting as if you are in this dire distress and deep physical pain when really you've lost the game of Uno. And we can just very quickly shuffle the cards and redeal, and we can go at it again, and there will be another opportunity. But with young children, small things become ultimate things very, very quickly. I want to tell you something about our life as a church. One of the important disciplines that we have as Christians that we engage in together as the local church is we engage in that same process of reframing. We do it together we do it regularly. We do it in a disciplined sense. Because out there, Monday through Saturday, there are a lot of non-ultimate things that very quickly become ultimate, that very quickly become so distressing, so painful, that we, that we live our lives often in a spirit of despair, dismay, frustration, even anger. And it happens to the best of us. It happens in a world that is going crazy. And the world is going crazy because it is lost and it is sinful. And I'm not saying that all of those things that happen out there are as insignificant as a card game. But what we have to realize is that if we are coming together to worship the, uni the, the king of the universe to worship the God who created everything that we see, who has an eternal plan and an eternal solution and has sealed our eternity for us who are in Christ, then we need to be able to reframe and look at those things that are going wrong out here and recognize the joy, hope, and peace of what is going on in Christ's kingdom. And so when our minds are framed by that world, finite things become infinite. When our minds are framed by a finite world, the wars and rumors of war, they create fear. When our minds are framed by a finite world, inflation becomes an ultimate thing that creates great anxiety. When our minds are framed by the world out there, this finite world, societal in unrest, it creates this fear, anxiety, distrust of others. In societal disagreement, it creates anger. And here we are, this morning, and every Sunday morning, that we come together in here, allowing the Word of God to reframe a situation, 
allowing the Word of God to redirect our attention and allowing the Word of God to point us toward what is most ultimate. Now let me give you the context of Isaiah chapter 6. I told you last week that the introduction to Isaiah in chapter 1 gives us the story of not just the nation of Judah, but the story of all of humanity's greatest needs. And what did humanity need? Humanity needs repentance and redemption. Because humanity had to first understand our brokenness and then repent of our sin and then seek God and receive his redemption. Chapters 2 through 5 continue to unpack for the reader of Isaiah just how bad things were in Jerusalem and Judah in Isaiah's day. And then in Isaiah chapter 6, you hear Isaiah really speaking for the first time. Isaiah 1 through 5 is, is Isaiah just using God's words. And in Isaiah chapter 6, he speaks about himself for the first time. He tells a story about a real situation he found himself in, a real experience he had. He speaks for himself and he talks to God himself. God responds to, G, to, to what Isaiah says, and Isaiah responds to the call of the Lord. So this is a story of Isaiah's calling, but as we unpack it, I want you to receive it in this way. This is one of the most dramatic scriptures in all of the Bible. You, you want to learn more about this book, grow deeper in this book, recognize that this passage is an essential passage to hear and to understand. It paints a dramatic picture of an experience that left Isaiah saying, woe to me, I am ruined by the image of what he saw, by the sound of what he heard, by the recognition of what that meant for him and who he was. So as I read it, I pray that you'll receive it in all of the drama that comes around it. A broken man, a broken nation, in the very presence of a holy God. Isaiah chapter 6, 1 through 13. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphim. And they each had six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called out to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations and the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. Literally, I said, I am ruined. For I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips, and I am among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of all hosts. And then one of the seraphim, he flew to me, he had in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the, with, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? 
And I said, here I am. Send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their ears. And Sorry, their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities are laid waste without any inhabitants and the houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the people and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of this land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This passage gives us a stunning image of who God is. And our response to this passage will lead us through three simple steps. That if we want to grow, if we want to go deeper in who this eternal God is, then we must see God for who he truly is. See ourselves for what we truly are. And also see his plan for what he is going to do and what he is already doing in us and around us. So we'll unpack it in those three stages, one through four. Seeing God for who he is, seeing ourselves for who we are in verses 5 through 8, and seeing his plan in what he is doing in 9 through 13. I told you that chapters 2 through 5 are about Judah's sin, and, and this forms sort of an intro to the book. This is the first time Isaiah speaks for himself in the book, and it is the time that he is called. He sets the time of that as the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah was an extremely unique king within the history of the nation of Judah. He had a reign of 52 years. 52 years. One person sat on the throne of Judah. All by the way, this is after the, the nation had split in two, and Israel to the north had one king, Judah to the south had another king, and Israel went through king after king after king after king after king. And Uzziah sat on the throne in Jerusalem all that time. And it was a season of relative prosperity and peace for the nation. It was actually the most peaceful season for the nation of Judah since Solomon when there was a united kingdom. And Uzziah's reign was so central and important in the history of the nation of Judah. You have a great king in David. You have a great king in Solomon. And then you have a whole bunch of mess with a few good ones in, in between there. But you have Uzziah for 52 years, a symbol of stability, a symbol of strength. And then he was gone. And so, recognize that when Isaiah sees this image of God seating, sitting on the throne, it is a season in which Isaiah and the nation as a whole are mourning the loss of their stability, are asking questions about what comes next, all the while knowing that Israel to the north, their brothers, they're about to fall to Assyria. 
And there's other world powers growing up all around the nation of Judah. They can no longer count on Israel's strength as an ally. Israel is about to be decimated by Assyria. There's anxiety. There's fear. And God shows up to reframe for Isaiah that there is a king on the throne. That in the year that King Uzziah died, the king that was on the throne thousands of years before Uzziah was born, was still seating on his throne. It is a way for God to show his prophet who he is and what that means for everybody around. Now, he, let's, let's look at these verses carefully here. So Isaiah sees the Lord seating on a throne, and then it says his train fills the temple. Does that mean that his throne is in the temple of God? Where, where is Isaiah in this? Here's what I think it means. Isaiah is worshiping in the temple, and as he is worshiping in the temple, he sees an image of God in his throne room. The temple of God is a shadow of the eternal throne room of God in heaven. And so what happens is as Isaiah is worshiping in the shadow, in the human-sized picture of this eternal reality. The eternal reality breaks through into the human-sized picture, and the eternal throne room of God actually shows up in this limited-sized picture of the temple of God. And so he sees the shadow become the reality, and the two meld into one simple reality in which God is seated on the throne in this temple in Jerusalem. And in the presence of God's holiness, look at what struck Isaiah. He was struck by his own impurity first, but also the nation's impurity. And he is struck at the sight of the Lord Almighty. Why is that the case? Because of the, of the, the number of great angels that are called seraphim. Seraph is the singular, seraphim are the plural. How many were there? We don't know. Isaiah doesn't tell us. But you know what John says in Revelation 5 when he sees the throne room of God? John says in Revelation 5, myriads of myriads, thousands upon thousands. There are hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, of these incredible majestic creatures known as seraphim that have six wings. They're, they're beautiful, they're large, they're strong, they're mighty. You want to know how, long, how large a seraphim is? So Isaiah is sitting in the temple in Jerusalem, right? He's worshiping God in the temple, and then it shakes. The foundations, the entire building shakes. Have you ever been in a house, in a building, as it is shaking? In our house, we have um, lots of trees. Trees create danger for a house. They're old trees, old house. And I remember the night when lightning struck a tree that was right in our front yard. The tree didn't fall, but we, we look out the next day and we saw the lightning going all, all down the tree, bursting out a portion of the bark going down. I remember how the house shook when a lightning bolt comes and strikes in the vicinity of the house. The house shakes. It takes a lot to shake a house. Let me paint this picture. The voice of one, the voice of one seraph shook the temple of God. 
with mighty bricks, this incredible, amazing structure in Jerusalem. How many seraphs were there? Thousands upon thousands. I think that means thousands times thousands, which gives us a number in the millions. There's millions of these creatures, and one of them can shake the foundations of the temple in Jerusalem, the largest, sturdiest, most incredible structure in the nation is being shaken by the voice of one creature. And that creature cannot even look on the face of God. That creature has a voice that can shake a building and eyes that cannot gaze into the beauty and majesty of all of who God is. Think about that for a second. Think about what Isaiah must have felt seeing this majestic beauty in such humility in the presence of its king. None of those millions of angels, they were actually equipped with, wing, with wings for the purpose of covering their eyes and covering their feet because feet are impure and the eyes could not look on the purity of the person of God and they were flying with the other six wings. That's what God created them to do. And Isaiah said, I don't even belong here. I'm so unclean. My lips are unclean. I dwell among a people of unclean lips. There is nothing righteous about me. And Isaiah is just stunned. And he's broken. I want you to remember something about the holiness and the transcendence of God. What Isaiah is painting the picture of here for us is the most beautiful, amazing, awe-inspiring creature that could have been seen by human eyes is humbled and subservient in the sight of a holy God. And I want you to remember something. The distance between that creature, this seraph, and the smallest creature that God has created, a single-cell organism, the, the, the distance in the grandeur and the glory and the beauty is insignificant compared to the distance in the grandeur and the beauty between God Almighty and that seraph. Because the distance between God's creations is measurable and finite. So a seraph is much more glorious and beautiful and amazing and complex than a single cell organism. But the distance between that complex, beautiful, amazing angel and God Almighty himself is an infinite gap. And so even these mighty seraphim were nothing in comparison to the holiness and the beauty of God. And if they can't look on the beauty of God, why should Isaiah? Why? Isaiah had to be asking himself, why am I even in this room? Why am I even laying my eyes on this? But it's not just, it's not just that, this, um, that these seraphim were covering their feet and covering their eyes, but they were singing to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That means the Lord of the armies of heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of us and all of our armies. In the language of Hebrew, repetition is infinite, is emphasis. It's not emphasis by addition, it's emphasis by multiplication. It's an exponential growth. So holy, holy doesn't mean double holy. 
It means holy times holy, exponentially more holy. Holy, holy, holy. One time in the Hebrew Old Testament is anything repeated three times like this, and it is only in reference to the holiness of God. Holy, holy, holy. You cannot be more holy than that. You cannot be more perfect than that. And so the whole picture that Isaiah has given to us is to show us that we are nothing. That we are nothing in comparison to the beauty of the eternal king that is sitting on his throne that is totally different from us in every way. And yet Isaiah's got to be there for a reason, right? So Isaiah gets it in that moment. Isaiah gets the humility He gets his place in the room, and he knows he doesn't belong there. And and not all of us, we're not invited to live this picture with him. We're invited in to see the picture of what he is experiencing, to learn the same lesson he learned through his example. So Isaiah's heart sees his own condition and the condition of his people, and is broken, is humbled. He says, woe to me, I am ruined, or I am lost. This is verse 5. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The seraphim are covering their eyes, not looking on the King. And Isaiah, like, it's like he accidentally saw the King, right? It's like, I, I wasn't planning on this happening today. I was going to the temple to worship, and this scene showed up, and the very being, almighty, eternal, glorious, beautiful, blazing, white, bright being, all of that was right in my eyes, and it filled my eyes, and the angels wouldn't even dare to look at him. And now, Isaiah says, I'm ruined. But then the angel, the seraph, takes a burning coal, and he takes it with tongs, by the way, the word seraph, seraphim, they mean, it means burning ones. The seraphim were bright and burning. The literal Hebrew word means that they are on fire, burning, blazing a brilliant light into the scene. So the glory of, of God is central while there's millions of burning, glowing angels with six wings each. But one of those angels, one of those seraphs, takes a burning coal. He picks it up with the tongs, not because it's hot, because remember, the seraph is a burning one, but because of the holiness of God. It is not the angel bringing his holiness into the picture. The angel is is still not anything in comparison with God the Father. But the coal is coming from the presence of God the Father at the foot of the throne. And it is the coal that is coming to purify Isaiah. And he comes, Isaiah says, my lips are unclean, and the seraph says, here, I'll touch this to your lips. And the scalding fire of the holiness of God purifies Isaiah. And the shocking, life-changing aspect of this vision was that Isaiah had a personal meeting with God. A vivid, real, personal experience that he would never forget. And that we get to learn from here today. God used the angel to reach out and to bring atonement. He says, behold, verse 7. He touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and 
your sin is atoned for. Two steps, he says. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. So here we have this picture of the gospel. That what we need, remember Isaiah 1, we learn what humanity needs most. We need to recognize our sin, we need to repent of our sin, and we need to receive redemption from God. Isaiah 1 doesn't tell us what that redemption is going to be. It just tells us this is going to be possible, this is coming. But in Isaiah 1, God doesn't give us the answer. Isaiah 6, God gives us a little bit more of the answer. Because the redemption that is coming means guilt is taken away and sin is atoned for. The removal of guilt indicates that the punishment for Isaiah's sin is not going to be extracted or exacted upon him. The punishment for his sin will no longer come on him because his guilt has been removed by that, blaming hot, by that flaming hot coal. But the atonement means that God's wrath and the sin that motivated it were satisfied, and it is completely taken away. So Isaiah will not suffer the punishment for his sin, and his sin has been completely removed and taken away, and God is now able to forget about it. And sin no longer separates God from Isaiah, and Isaiah is allowed to be there in God's presence. This is what we need in the gospel. We, every single one of us, needs what Isaiah received. We don't receive it from a burning coal in an image of the throne room of God. We receive it by Jesus, God's son, descending to earth, being born in humble circumstances, growing up in a simple family, and then dying a death he did not deserve. At the end of a righteous life in which he completely and, and perfectly obeyed the law in every sense, he was punished and he was killed. And in his death, he paid the penalty for our sins and in so doing, atoned for our sins, removed the guilt from us. So our sins were covered and taken away and we receive instead the righteousness that comes from him. So Isaiah's experience shows us how any one of us can, number one, identify the sin that separates us from God. See God in his holiness and identify the sin that separates us. It also shows us, number two, how everyone, everyone should respond when sin is revealed. Admission and repentance. Isaiah doesn't say, well, I must be in this room because I'm the best of the nation. Isaiah says, woe to me, I am ruined because I'm unclean and so is my entire nation. He doesn't put himself on a pedestal above everybody else, even though everybody else looked pretty bad. And so he probably could have convinced himself that I'm not as bad as all these other jokers out here. But he didn't allow that because the holiness of God doesn't allow that when you're in the presence of that beautiful and perfect picture. So it shows us how we identify sin by seeing God's perfections and seeing ourselves falling so short of it. And then it shows us how we repent of our sin in admitting our brokenness, and it also shows how God removes sin through atonement. And our atonement comes through Jesus. The most telling indicator for us that God has redeemed us and renewed us is that we may, is that even when we don't get all the things right, even when we don't do it all the right way and don't perfectly obey, we never say, well, I'm not that bad because that person 
he said. The telling indicator is that we say, woe to me, I have sinned against the holy king again. That's how you know grace is at work. You know grace is at work when you stop comparing yourself to the sinfulness, the brokenness, the wickedness of others, and you start comparing yourself to this picture that Isaiah receives in the throne room of God of holy perfection and his brokenness. And when you compare yourself to that image, you know that the grace of God is at work in your heart and in your life. And so in this picture, God brings his throne room into the temple in the middle of Jerusalem. And he calls Isaiah to himself. And then he moves beyond his eternal throne room into the nation of Judah through the capital city in Jerusalem and his house in, t- in the temple. And he sends Isaiah out from there. And recognize what's happening here. God is demonstrating how heaven is coming to earth and heaven is coming to earth on a mission. On a mission. For people to recognize the holiness of God and recognize their own brokenness and sinfulness and to hear the message of atonement and guilt removal so that we can be reconciled to God. That's the mission that God is is unveiling a new chapter of here in this passage. And see how Isaiah responds. Verse 8, he hears this voice that says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah responds, here I am, send me. He was so grateful, so transformed in an instant. He went from, I can't speak, my eyes have seen the king, I am ruined, to here I am, send me, because atonement does that. Atonement transforms. It's a radical change from one day to another. And when Isaiah recognizes the radical change, he says, here I am, send me. And God says, okay, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isaiah is the longest book of Old Testament prophecy. 66 chapters. 66 chapters of one person repenting, Isaiah. And on the day that Isaiah repents, receives atonement, and has his guilt taken away, the Lord promises him, you're the last one. You're the last one in all of your ministry and all that you're going to do from here. Now what you're going to do is you are going to go and you're going to be my instrument, you're going to be my messenger, and nobody else is going to repent. Their ears are going to be hard. Their eyes are going to be closed. And the more you say it, the louder you say it, the more they're going to close their eyes to my redemption. Why? Because God had grown tired of the nation that did not truly obey him. We talked about it last week. They offered sacrifices. They weren't real sacrifices. They were, they were hedging their bets. They were worshiping Yahweh, the God of Israel, with whom they had a covenant, and they were worshiping all these false gods too. They were offering sacrifices, sure, but it wasn't sacrifices in true worship or in hearts of real devotion to the true king. They were faking it, and they weren't making it in their faking it. And what God is saying through Isaiah to the nation now is, 
I'm going to preach. I'm going to deliver this message. I'm going to use Isaiah to speak to you, but I know you're not listening. Here's a dire warning for us a couple thousand years later. That it is still possible to hear the message of salvation, to hear the good news, and to receive it with dull hearts, closed ears, and covered eyes. And in fact, for many churchgoers, this is the risk. This is the danger. That the more you hear the good news, the more you hear the message that will save, transform, remove guilt, and atone. That the more complacent you get to it, the more dulled your heart becomes, and eventually your ears just start closing altogether. Your mind starts shutting down altogether. It is a danger that is true in the nation of Israel thousands of years ago and is true in the church today. I'm not pointing at anyone in particular here, but I'm telling you and I'm warning you that there's going to be a lot of churchgoers that on the last days are going to enter into the presence of King Jesus. Jesus is going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. He promises that in the Gospels. The reason he promises that is because of what Isaiah is dealing with here. This same dynamic can happen where the message of God's holiness and the message of repentance and the message of the need for forgiveness of sins is received with great dullness. And God will sometimes allow us to just go on in the depravity of our minds and spin ourselves deeper into a hole of darkness and depravity because we've rejected him in our minds. Don't let that be true of you. Let today be the day that the glowing image, the big bright image of the holiness of God sinks past all of your defenses where you try to make it through life on your own and you say you believe in God, but what you really want to do is fix your own problems and live in your own strength and figure out your own solutions to everything. Let all those natural defenses die today. And let the holiness of God sink through and see yourself for who you truly are in your brokenness and in your dependence. And let this holy God truly transform you. The authors of the New Testament quoted verses 9 and 10 more then they quoted verses 1 through 6. Because they saw, they saw the effects of the hearing but not understanding. That was the, the world that Jesus came into. The world that God predicted in Isaiah 6. And they warned the early Christians, don't do this. Don't let the early Christian movement become what the nation of Israel had become. Here's what one commentator says about this passage. It says that when we walk into the church, every time we hear the word of God is an opportunity. And the opportunity to hear the living and active, sharp, piercing word of God, one of two things happens. Every time we hear it, either we grow closer to God because our hearts are inflamed and our minds are engaged in the reality of who he is and what he has done for us, or our hearts are more dulled because we've shut down the word of God entering into our lives, at least in that moment. So there's a great danger here that the Christian life, listen, you don't just stay where you are in the Christian life. 
you're either growing closer to God or you're moving away from God. You don't just sit there and you don't just stay. Honestly, human life is like that the same, in the same way. You're either growing or you're dying. You're either growing or at one point you recognize, I'm not getting younger anymore, I'm getting older. And the bad news for that is that your body starts to go the other way. It's growing and getting stronger and you're young and, and, you're, and you're feeling the energy of youth. And then the next day, right when you think you've hit your peak, your hair starts falling out. You're like, wait a second, I thought I was still growing. And one day, while you were sleeping, you went from growing to getting old. And you didn't choose that path. And the same with your Christian life. You're either growing deeper into relationship with Him, or you're drifting. And the drift takes you away from Him. And every time we open up the Word of God to hear it preached, to hear it presented, we have a choice. Are we going to grow closer, or are we going to drift farther away? There's some really cool news in this passage. Obviously, we we have this picture of Jesus, the coal, the burning coal, is a picture of Jesus in guilt removal and atonement. But the last six words, the last six words of this chapter, give all the beauty, all the meaning, wrap it all up in this beautiful bow that takes a really concerning picture and gives us this incredible hope. Because at the end, at the end of the chapter, what does Jerusalem look like? Burned by fire. Destroyed. That's what God is predicting. God is predicting that the nation of Judah, that his chosen people, are going to be continuing their disobedience. He's going to, he's going to destroy their land. He's going to discipline them. And they're not going to believe. They're not going to repent. And then everything's just going to be completely broken down. And one stump remains. Verse 7, even though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. So all this burning, all of this destruction, there's one tree stump that stays, and the holy seed, or the holy offspring, is its stump. Take a quick trip back to Genesis chapter 3. What do we learn in Genesis chapter 3? We learn that because of the man and woman's sin, God is bringing judgment on them. They've now been separated from God because of their sin. God says to the man, uh, work's going to be hard now. The fields aren't going to grow easily. There's going to be thorns, and, and they're going to infect the ground, and you're going to have to work harder. It's not going to be easy to grow crops anymore says to the woman, you're going to experience this great pain in childbirth. You're also going to experience um, this great conflict in marriage, and men and women are going to have, have strife between them. He says, particularly to the woman, he says, this serpent, will, will, you will be at enmity with this serpent, and there will be an offspring that will come from you, woman, Eve, and this offspring, the serpent, Satan, the great enemy of God, will strike the heel of the offspring. And the offspring will respond by crushing the head of the serpent. The same language, the same seed, the same offspring, 
Genesis 3, one singular offspring, the holy seed, is predicted to come and crush the head of the serpent. And here we have Isaiah chapter 6, God speaking through Isaiah to the nation. I haven't forgotten about that. When you see your nation burned because of your disobedience and because of God's justice, don't forget that heel-crushing offspring of the woman is still on his way. And that stump that remains in the ground in the center of Jerusalem, it will become a mighty tree again because there's going to be a shoot that will grow up out of that stump and that shoot is going to be this majestic tree and all these vines are going to be drafted, are going to be grafted into that tree, meaning that tree's no longer just going to be Israel as we enter the new covenant, but we as non-Israelites, as non-Jews are grafted into this same holy, majestic, amazing tree this tree the branch that comes from Jesse this tree is Jesus you study that tree all throughout scripture the tree's there the tree's there all throughout scripture and we are the ones that in John are grafted in and we are the ones that in John 15 are now called to abide to remain to continue because the life of the tree brings life to its branches. And so we show up here. There's so much judgment and justice for a disobedient nation of Israel, and all of a sudden, here we are in the last six verses. This holy seed, Jesus, is going to to grow again out of the destruction that has come to the nation of Judah in Jerusalem, and Jesus, as he grows into this mighty tree, is going to graft us in every nation, tongue, and tribe. It's a beautiful picture. Advent is about longing. It's about waiting. It's about wrestling through the depths of despair that come from seasons of disobedience and seasons of brokenness. And that's where Israel, where Judah is living in this passage. But we see the hope of Christ shining through in the end. So I'm going to ask the choir to get set, and I'm going to, I'm going to wrap it up this way. Leave us with three powerful, beautiful sights to see. As you engage in Jesus this Advent season, as you prepare for Jesus, your number one goal is to see God for who he is. Gaze on the beauty of the holiness of God, his moral perfection, his transcendence, that he's not just better than us, he's different from us. He is something totally different. And as we see God in his righteousness, holiness, and moral perfection, we also see ourselves in all of our brokenness. See ourselves that in our sin we have fallen short, in our sin we have missed the mark, in our sin we have rebelled, in our sin we have disobeyed, and in our sin we are dead in our trespasses. And as we see God, as we see ourselves, we then see our need for a holy seed to rise up out of the stump and to bring new life for us all. So see God, see ourselves, see our need for Jesus. But finally, just as Isaiah was called, so God's calling comes to everyone now. Everyone who was atoned for. You can look at the story of Isaiah in kind of a negative way, right? I told you that in Isaiah, in that whole book, 66 chapter, one person 
receives atonement for sin, Isaiah. And that one person is called into God's ministry to go proclaim what God is doing and has done. Let me tell you something. The math works the same way now. Everyone that receives atonement and receives the forgiveness of our sins is now called out. The voice from the Lord says, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? We go different places. We don't all go the same way. But if you've received atonement, you've received a calling to go, to make disciples, to grow in in faithfulness to Christ, and to represent the beauty of the atonement and to proclaim Christ's sacrifice to the nations. So as we yearn for Jesus, we recognize he's now called us out for his glory and for his kingdom.
Amen. Would you all stand with me? I want to go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we praise you that your kingdom has entered into this earth. And as Isaiah saw your throne room flooding into the temple in Jerusalem, now through Jesus your kingdom has spread to every nation, tongue, and tribe. Your spirit has spread into the hearts and minds of everyone who has repented and received life through Jesus. And so when we praise that Christ, the everlasting Lord, will reign forevermore, we know it because we're already living as a part of that kingdom. And Father, we know that we only know in part now. But God, we long for the day. We long for the day when we will fully enter into your eternal kingdom. And heaven and earth will meet and will become one eternal reality with your holy city, Jesus, lighting the path through the glory and beauty that he shines. Father, we praise you for the eternal becoming um, mortal, for Jesus becoming a man, so that we might enter into an eternal kingdom. Give us grace this morning, Father, as we celebrate and worship you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now remain standing and receive the blessing from the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Go in peace.